Welcome to Founders and Friends Podcast with Scott Orn at Cruise Consulting. And before we get to an awesome episode with Anduane of Village Global, quick shout out to Rippling. Rippling has the best payroll product on the market. They do great with benefits and they have a really amazing IT infrastructure integration. So you can spin up all your new employees, connect them to all their web services super fast. And at Cruise, we actually know, we did a study, it takes three hours to do this. Poor Tatiana, our operations manager, does it every single time. Um, if we don't pay our IT consulting firm to do it, which is $140 an hour, which equates to 400 and something dollars, $500, $400. Anyways, Rippling will save you a ton of money on that. And plus, it just has a great payroll and benefits solution. So check out Rippling when you get a chance. And now, Anne, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Well, thank you, Scott. It's nice to be here. And I must give you props for the clever uh, jingle that you have when your troubles are mounting in tax and accounting. Uh, <laughs> come to Cruise Consulting. So uh, kudos to you and to the artist. Thank you so much. Evan Maher of Logical, He his band made that, the, the jingle, and that makes me so happy. And I know Evan is smiling <laughs> as he listens to this. Well, my partner, Eric Torenberg, does a podcast called Venture Stories. And Eric is a very talented freestyle rapper. And I might challenge him to, you know, up his game to match wow. the Cruise Consulting wow. jingle. Yes. Well, we, I will, we'll, we'll have to introduce him to Evan. They can, do, <laughs> they can do a battle of the bands. Yeah, exactly. Um, well, so, Anne, can you introduce, kind of retrace your career a little bit for the audience? Oh, sure. I was a longtime founder, a recent VC, and I'm just basically a fan of doing things better, faster, uh, cheaper with technology, and just helping people unleash their potential. My entrepreneurial career started back in the 1900s when um, <laughs> I, uh, with uh, Chris Michael and an amazing team, uh, started a company called Military.com. Oh, which no was, way. You were Military.com? No way. Yes. And it was really early, um, and it was a social and professional network for the uh, military and veteran communities. Not about the politics of the military, but just helping people get their benefits and stay connected for life. And actually, next month, we're having our 20th year reunion. That company became part of Monster, which is in the job space. Yeah. In 2004, and it still uh, persists today. We used to, I used to work at Hamburg and Quist in yes. 1999, and we did a ton of fundraising or MA or something yes. for you. I just remember yes. the guy next to me, Noah Wintrub, who I think is now like a vice chairman of JP Morgan. It, no, Noah actually took Chegg public. Yeah, so oh, no, wait, know, okay, yeah. yeah. Okay, so we have many points of connection. So Noah was an associate when I joined and tutored me through a ton of stuff, and he used to talk about military.com all the time. <laughs> so that's amazing. That's why I was like, oh, gosh. Yes, that was the beginning of communities and in the internet and just serving a really um, a great community. And then joined Monster through acquisition and then grew that and then got a call from uh, the amazing Mike Leventhal, who um, was at the time. I'm a partner at Mayfield Fund, and he said, I've just angel invested in a startup team in Utah, and um, they're trying to make it a cinch to get in and pay for college for Generation Z, which is um, Zinch was the name of the company. And I flew out and was just so impressed with that team and joined them and then um, grew that company, raised some venture capital, um, started working with Chegg as our largest customer. And Chegg came in and said, we like it so much. We want all of your team to join Chegg. So we went, uh, were acquired and then went through the IPO process there, uh, which was a, a wild ride and, and uh, just yeah. an amazing team there at Chegg. And we'll talk about that a little bit later because at Lighthouse, we did a deal with a competitor, but we looked at Chegg many times and could never get to a deal. 
probably because you picked someone else who had a better <laughs> deal than us, which I can't blame you for. But like I watched the whole thing happen, and yeah, well, it was a, it was a really impressive ride. Well, and it's a great team, and I give it Dan Rosenzweig and the the uh, team was great. And it was actually Dan's suggestion. Um, he said maybe your next chapter should be adventure. So that was my transition, and it's really. Um, just a pleasure to back early stage founders as they're making something from nothing. It's it's and I've had the pleasure of speaking to your group, and they're like they're the, you can see these are like savvy people. You prepared them properly, and they are going out there. And the range of the at least the last batch was their last group of investors yeah. you, or companies you invest in were doing a lot of different fintech stuff. I was actually really impressed, which is stuff I love. Yeah, so Village Global is a $100 million fund, and we are founder-driven, not thesis-driven in a sense. And the thesis of our fund is really simple, which is an extended network can help founders learn and grow faster. And there's three levels to our network. The first is we're backed by limited partners who are themselves very successful founders oh, that's great. who still have love of the early stage yep. game. And so it's Jeff Bezos, it's Sarah Blakely, it's Bill Gates, it's Ann Wojcicki, um, Magic Johnson, lots of people who've been entrepreneurial. And um, we don't want to overpromise that, but we're fortunate to have them engaging in events and, and um, opening some of their networks and in some cases um, following on in our investments, which is exciting. The second level of the network is that we curate a network of angel investors around the world oh, who nice. help us source, select, and support. I didn't know that. And we think um, some of those people are angels with an amazing track record, and some are maybe first-time founders at Series A or B, and they just have a tremendous flow of deals and good judgment. And we can entrust capital with both of those groups so they can be out there selecting these entrepreneurs and then supporting them. Is that how does the, how the mechanics of that work? Is it like a scout program or do they yeah. come back to you and say, Anne, I found this great company, you should invest in them? Well once we pick that scout, we call them network leaders, mm -hmm. they are authorized to do investments on wow. our behalf. That's awesome. And we think that if we all think alike, we don't think very much. And so <laughs> we find these people around the world who are at the first call for founders yeah. and leads to a very interesting portfolio. Um, but one you said, uh, actually, as you look at it, um, it does kind of converge. There's a bunch of fintech, there's a bunch of AI and um, ML, and there's a bunch of digital health and you know future of work and things like that. So um, it's not that surprising. But what we'd like to think is we are uncovering people early, we're trusted and helpful, and yeah. then um, hopefully we're finding some people who might have been otherwise overlooked or underestimated. I love that. You also said something I, I love, which is being founder-driven. I happen to share the same philosophy. Maybe you could talk about founder-driven versus maybe thesis-driven and what that means for picking the right seed investments. Yeah. Well, the best news is it's never been a better time to be a founder. Yeah. yeah. In fact, I think sometimes I, I say that my... like once a day. Because <laughs> people are like, should I raise more money now or should I wait? I'm like, raise more money now. This is, this is as good as it gets. Yeah. Well, and it's also like there's more tools, there's more support for founders, there's more appreciation that it's a very hard journey, but there's a lot of people around to help. So there's no right way to invest, just like there's no real right way to start a company. But some investors are very skilled on a sector. They're very hot on a particular kind of business model or something. And so their lens on the world is to go out and find founders um, yeah. delivering to those interests and capitalizing on those opportunities. We believe that early stage, sometimes founders are conceiving of in markets that are quote unquote invisible or maybe um, ill-defined and 
are creating categories, and we therefore will follow the person where they take us. And even some of our the famous founders and very successful founders that have backed us said when they started, they weren't exactly sure where totally. things would uh, lead. So, And that's part of being a great founder, too, yeah. is being what do they say, conviction on the long-term vision, yeah. but flexible on the details, yep. and also be you know a bit uh, opportunistic. I also think, and I agree with everything you said, because I'm a founder-driven person. Like, you meet someone, they have a, a view of the world, and you just can't help but buy into what they're doing, you know? And I, I think you, the, the other, other thing that you didn't talk about, which is often there'll be an existing market, instead of creating a market, which is usually better, like Amazon created a market, right? That's, that's a huge yep. win. But there's times where, like, Rippling's a good example where who would have thought of combining payroll and, like, the Okta identity management solution, right? Like, so those yep. folks saw something in a market that was existing that could be exploited or built. And so that's, those, I love people like that too. Yeah. Sometimes I like to say that great founders are a little bit like comedians, not in their comedic value. So some of them are, are very funny. funny. Yeah. But, um, <laughs> Comedians don't see a different world than the rest of us, but they see the humor in the world. Yeah. And entrepreneurs don't see a different world. They see the opportunity in the world. And they also get off their um, chair and, and go go after it. And they do it, yeah. Now, you, we were talking before uh, we turned on the mics, and you've been an operator, you've been a VC, and we, and we were joking, but I think it's a legit question that we were talking about, which is, what do you wish you knew as an operator that you now know as a VC? So, we could probably do that question the other way, too. <laughs> yeah, I think you can't control everything, but I think as a founder, you have a couple of choices. And what I've learned over the years, and having lived through 2001, which was really challenging, and yeah. 2008, we had to kind of go through some pretty tough times. And in retrospect, a couple of things. One is be laser focused on your next goals, because there's a lot of bright, shiny objects out there. And if you're saying, what needs to be true for me to drive value into the business such that it reaches its next inflection point, which is often raising money if you're in a venture-backed business. So, and that leads me to say things like, if you don't have a plan, everything looks like progress. Yeah. And then the minute you raise a seed round, you should be at least thinking about what would need to be true for me to raise a Series A. Now, you may be wrong about that, and the market may change and things like that, but if you go forward with a plan and then you're validating progress versus plan, learning versus plan, you can decide, hey, should I continue, double down, or change? Yep. Um, but be explicit about that because I think that I remember being a couple months before a Series A or B I don't know, and <laughs> thinking, gosh, if I'd have just been more focused at the beginning, I would have saved a lot of time. Not that it would have been right, but just more focused. Yeah. The plan and, and the focusing aspect of that is so important. I, I agree like a thousand percent. Now in my world, because I'm like a finance person, I tend to think plan. And because I'm finance and accounting, I think financial model, budget to actuals, that kind of stuff, yep. which we should maybe we can talk about. But yeah. It, what do you see as a board member and as an investor? Like, that's one aspect of the plan, probably. But what are the other things you look at? Yeah, well, so it's interesting because the plan, I always think, should be there should be a North Star that you identify. And again, you're subject to change without notice. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, but you're constantly learning versus that plan. And, you know, I love this Miles Davis quote, which is when you make a mistake when you're playing music, 
it's actually the next note that determines mm. whether it was in fact a mistake. And I think that is a very valuable lesson for entrepreneurs is that they are not really in control of many things. But what you are in control is your pers- your response to these stimuli that yeah, come in, yeah. right? And your ability to bob and weave. And the only two advantages that a startup has really versus a big company, because they don't have more money, they don't have more brand, they don't have more team, whatever, is ability to learn fast yeah. and adapt. And passion, yeah. Yeah, even to put like an example of that, like we had some HR issues 18 months ago and the that was the note that went bad. Mm-hmm. And then we could have you know, done repeat the same mistakes, but we ended up investing a ton of money in systems and better communication and HR support and things like that. So we made that second note to use your analogy. And everyone has these same problems, like whether it's HR or maybe a technology problem or maybe a financing problem, whatever it is. I think that's a really, I love how you said that. Like, it's what you do next. It's how you yeah. respond, which is what really matters. And then I'll just share one other anecdote. There's research done decades ago on luck. And this um, researcher at a university brings a bunch of students in. And um, first he says, I want you to say, are you a lucky person or an unlucky person? And they mark it. Okay. Then he hands them a newspaper and says, I want you to page through the newspaper and count all the pictures. And when you are done and you have the correct count, come up and you'll get $20. And so people start. And then all of a sudden, a few people get right up and... Um, hand in their paper and leave. And people are wondering, huh, what's going on? Well, here's what was happening. On page two of the newspaper was a big block of text that said, you can stop counting pictures, bring the newspaper up, and um, you'll get $100. Oh, my God. Oh, my God. And what's interesting is a higher, much higher percentage of the people who categorized themselves as lucky actually read that big block no. of text. Because They're a lot of observant. unlucky people were working very diligently to count pictures. Wow. And I think there's a bit of learning in there yeah. about how do you continually find the opportunity in what's in front of you. Yeah, that's a really great because you're right, and there's more observant, more in tuned, and they can they be, can be more flexible, especially for startups. Like you said, like you know, you worked at some bigger companies, company went IPO, but like when you're a five person team or a ten person team, which it sounds like you've yeah, you know, it's all about where you focus your time and how you're pivoting the company and and or, or yeah. serving the customers that actually really care about you at that stage because not that many care about you at that stage. Correct, and you have a lot to worry about. Like being a founder is really really hard. But if you don't free enough of your mind to continually revisit the big picture and continually scan the environment for opportunities and threats, I think you can, number one, you won't enjoy the journey as much. But number two, you you might not be as successful. Yeah, that's amazing advice. So and going back, you made a reference to something which I think is important. The market can change on you. So what may be like a, a seed level company now may not be a year from now and what Series A. But what the question I get constantly is, what does it take to raise a Series A? And maybe you can answer that question in the in the context of this market, and maybe tell a couple like war stories from like military.com or you know. Sure, I got But it. like, hey, this, the ball moves sometimes, right? And like, what yes. raises a Series A now? Maybe couldn't have raised a Series A six years ago. Yeah, and the letters are a little bit misleading now, and the bar is definitely going up. So as Series A's have gone up, and and I think Mar. <laughs> at Paraventures did a wonderful study of um, metrics for Series A and things like that, which is worth Googling. And if the average Series A, I think, is around $8 million in Silicon Valley, that is is big. And traditionally, so what I I think about is 
usually you want to do some value hacking or something like that. You want to show that um, you're creating more value and then you're going to be able to capture a bunch of that, right? Yeah. Like there's a concept there, okay? Then you're moving towards product market fit and then um, growth. And in one sense, just while there are benchmarks like you need more than a million dollars of SaaS to raise um, Series A, and that's ticking up to 1.5 or even 2 or whatever. The quality and the quantity are, and of, the, of the relationships or the quality of that revenue matters a ton. Yep. So while I think it's good for founders to have some benchmarks, the best founders define for investors the opportunity and the reasons to believe. And the mm. reality is many companies have relatively small amounts of revenue today, even at Series A. But what they've showed is engagement loops, opportunity, competitive or differentiation. So the most important thing in fundraising is to tell your story. Yep. And you won't match the hatch with every investor. Some will have preconceived notions about a market or whatever. But I think your opportunity as a founder, first, build a good business, and financing should be a byproduct yep, of building yep, a great yep. business. I love the phrase defining a reason to believe is maybe the most eloquent way I've ever heard that put. That is, can I, can I steal that? <laughs> of course. I will credit you. I'll footnote you in every conversation. <laughs> Did not invent that No, phrase. but like people, sometimes I say like, it's kind of like we, I went to business school. So people focus on the GMAT when you're going yeah. to business school because it's a quantitative number. And so everyone cares what your score is. And with raising a series A, I feel like people focus on the revenue number to their detriment sometimes, like yeah. that million dollar, 1.5, whatever it is. But like what you said is so eloquent, like the reason to believe in this company is they have incredibly high engagement or it's completely viral or you're so serving a niche that's never been served before and it's going to be super lucrative. Like demonstrating that is really powerful. Right. And I really think that no is the rational answer for should is this company a good investment because the odds are stacked against yeah. every company. <laughs> yeah. So it has to be, yes, is based in emotion mm -hmm. and belief in addition to rationality. Yep. yep, I love it. There's another kind of an embedded story we can talk about, what you said was the letters are misleading nowadays, meaning Series A, Series B, Series yep. C. And I think you and I probably kind of did this all at the same time in our, in our careers. So what Village Global is now is probably what a Series A fund used to be 10 or 15 years ago. Would you agree with that? Yes. Maybe can you talk, I, yeah. we can talk about so it. But, we are yeah. very comfortable being the first in the first capital or the, and definitely the first institutional capital of a founder. I was fortunate to work with at Zinch folks like Aiden Senkut at Felicis mm -hmm. when he was yeah. a super yeah. angel. Yeah. And again, he's been so su fabulously successful and has continued to raise bigger funds over time. But yes, Village is very focused on that first uh, inception, yep. and then trying to um, support entrepreneurs with an extended network so that they can, as I said, learn and grow faster. And our check sizes are usually $500,000 yep. or um, less. What's interesting today is you can do more with $500,000 than it was imaginable five or 10 or definitely 20 years ago. Yeah, totally. And so like the reason why I made that analogy is it used to be you have to go down the Sand Hill Road and you didn't really have a lot to show and you needed a Series A fund, the Mayfield. Yeah. Like Mayfield is a perfect yeah, example. $5 million that, yeah. Series A check yeah. with the PowerPoint. Or like I remember it as being like <laughs> two and a half or three, you know, and I'm like, hey, you're on oh, your yeah. way. Yeah. But so I think what's been super powerful is as those funds have kind of moved up the stack and institutionalized, and they're almost like 
they're more money manager these days than they were like pure VC back in the day. I don't mean that in a derogatory yeah. way. They just have bigger fund sizes. They write bigger checks yeah. because that's what scales. And one of the reasons we like working with these network leaders, which are is our term for scouts, is we think that when a founder is thinking about their next venture or their first venture, they um, don't want to call an institutional investor, right? They want to call a friend. They want to call a founder who's been yeah. there and done that and can help them, guide them on the journey. And we don't take board seats and our network leaders don't take board seats because these companies are little and they don't have boards. Yeah. But we... Our network leaders are, in many ways, sometimes like a board member, yeah. right? They're the um, guide on the side, helping you navigate this process. And the foundational part of a company is so important to the trajectory of that company. Yeah, yeah. And I have a lot of respect for funds like Village Global who are putting that first money because you said the default answer should be no. Yes. For almost every, <laughs> you know, even like, you know, I sometimes I still like Vanessa started Cruise Consulting, just she just did it. Amazing. And, you know, and like it's, oh, my gosh, you know. And so but like you believe and you're willing to put that time and you're also willing to enable these network operators to do this is, is really impressive. That's to me, that's the super hard work. I feel like in again, I don't mean this derogatory way, but like writing the big check once you have all the metrics spelled out in front of you. And, you know, that's less venture capital to me. Like and again, I'm I was raised 20 years ago on this stuff. So, <laughs> well, I have respect for all stages. And I think yeah. Sam Altman had a really nice quote, which he said, Early stage, we fund the dream, and later stage, you fund the DCF, yes. the discounted cash flow. <laughs> That's actually a really good way of um, saying it. And believe me, we love big check writers. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> but, yeah. And you need are, them to survive. Yeah, like, yeah, you, yeah. you know, that's totally, yeah. and, that's how the cycle works. And the great news for founders today is there are more options for capital than ever before. So whether that's clear bank and options for funding your marketing spend, whether that's thinking about venture debt or other kinds of um, structures for your real estate or for your inventory, Chegg raised a lot of equity to buy $100 million of textbooks. And believe me, it's hard to get venture returns on a bunch of books, even yep. if you're turning them. Yep. So um, Chegg very smartly figured out a way to put the ownership of the books in a different um, entity, in a, you know, a partner organization, and then run a pure digital service organization, which, frankly, capital markets and, and public markets and um, late-stage venture likes a lot better. I, what you're saying is brilliant, and, that, and it's so true. And I see that too. So, like, maybe we can run through it real fast. Yep. So, it used to be back in the day you would raise, you know, equity. Yeah. You guys raised 100 million, which is amazing. Yep. But maybe that five or 10 million, and you had to. The old days, you had to buy all your server equipment, right? <laughs> yep. And then, and then you started to be able to finance that server equipment with lenders. And now you can go to Amazon Web Services and just turn it on. There's no capex. So that's one way founders have saved a ton of money. You use the example of ClearBank, which is a company I know very well, and I like them a lot. Maybe you can uh, kind of explain how they fund the marketing spend real fast, yep. and just by an example. Yes. So if you're if you have a predictable marketing machine, and just a caveat that lots of our companies do not use paid advertising because it can be arbitrage way. But if that's your way to do customer acquisition, instead of using equity financing, which is quite dear to finance that, you can go to ClearBank share your metrics, and they will effectively give you money uh, with a little bit of a fee on top to run your marketing. Plus, by the way, I think you also get some benefits of their expertise and yeah. scale in doing marketing. Yep. And I think the same might be if you're renting space or something like that. You have real estate as part of your startup, as, or as we said, we have inventory as part of your startup. There might be other ways to get capital that's frankly cheaper, especially today when interest rates are so low. I totally agree. So like, we work as a kind of a solution for the real estate because you're signing a lease. That's that's debt. Actually, people don't think about that, but you are signing a lease. 
And then for the stuff like textbooks, like venture debt, which is what I used to do, is a really good option. There's also a new category led by like Lighter Capital and Bravo and yep. some of these other folks who are just doing, and ClearBank kind of dips into that too, but who are doing non like a traditional venture lender would do debt plus a little bit of warrants, a little bit of equity. Yep. These folks just do straight debt. It's a little more expensive, but you're not giving up dilution in your company. So that hundred, yep. I don't think any of those folks could have written a hundred million dollar check, but maybe a ten million dollar check for Chegg would have preserved, you know, maybe one percent of the company or something like that. Correct. Relative to another venture lender, it preserved debt versus just the equity would preserve ten percent of the company or twenty percent of the company, like a huge amount of of. Uh, Solution. Correct. Yeah. And this is why it's actually helpful to have good investors on your cap table who can help explore these options because founders go through these transactions and thinking once in a while. And the investors think about this all the time. And yep. we're talking to other people who have these things. And so it's increasingly common at Series A if you have some of these kinds of businesses to open up a venture debt capacity. And the reality is if you've just raised Series A, it's probably the cheapest time you can get money and things like that. Yeah. So, And again, it's not right for everyone. And having lived through tough economic times, debt can be very scary. But if you're, you do it in a very calculated and disciplined way, it can be really good. Yeah. I would say raise as much equity as you need and then use the debt for extra. Yeah. People run into trouble when they kind of try to replace with that because it's not really – you need that cushion. Debt's providing the cushion, in my opinion. Yes, and I think one of the lessons I would tell my younger self is build the company and its capital structure as intentionally as you build the product. And you can do that with the help of um, good investors yep. because then, again, you do preserve – equity for you and your employees. You preserve optionality if, if do, things do get tough. Plus, you can actually you know engineer a, a, a bigger company faster if totally. you're smart. And especially the founder. They, they're the ones who suffered a dilution yep. almost always. So that's Now, I don't know if you know this, but we actually have a venture debt page where we cover Great. all this stuff. Super. So, so type in Google. It's going to be this thing. Google's going to be big. Just type in K-R-U-Z-E <laughs> venture debt and you'll Learn more than you need to know about venture debt. And your um, website is very good for R&D tax credits and all you. that stuff, too. Thank you. Very nice. So we got to wrap up here in a little bit. But we were talking off mic about – because Chegg was this rocket ship company. I did a loan for a competitor of Chegg's that ended up – everyone tried really hard, just didn't get – like didn't do an IPO. But we were talking about some of the dynamics of competing with a big player in your market. Can you share a little bit of a war story on the on the Chegg <laughs> yeah. post IPO and, yeah, and and what that was like? After the IPO in 2013, Amazon decided to launch Textbook Rental, which was square in the sights of Chegg. And in e-commerce, you're often benchmarking versus your competitors, and the algorithms at work can be very fast and responsive. So if you um, want to match or beat your competitor by a penny, you can do that. And the tricky part of that is that in a digital world, you can race to the bottom pretty fast. And so when Amazon launched great PR and all the financial models that as a company you build about here's what we're going to sell for whatever, go out the window and you make a choice uh, as management team, and I remember a late Sunday night call saying, are we going to continue to match and put you know, profitability at risk? And, and if we don't, we're going to probably have some big share losses because guess what? Students care about prices. Yep. Yeah. <laughs> and we began a pretty well-documented price war. <laughs> and all that, was, that was not of your own causing. No, I no, add. no, no. <laughs> and, and so good for students. They got some great textbook deals. Um, and this is way back, you know, years ago. But all of a sudden, it stopped. 
because we had um, engaged in aggressive price competition. And it hurt everybody. In fact, in a future earnings statement, Amazon, which was also public, mentioned that there was severe competition in the textbook market. And that was, you know, I think there's a legendary story that Amazon was very competitive with diapers.com and did something which is kind of a funny word in the diaper category, which is (laughs) dumping, which means you price below your competitors and you force your competitors either out of business or just a lot of financial pain. And uh, big players can do that. And it's, you know, this, this real, this is a real rules of competition and sometimes consumers can win and all this stuff. But there are a few crucible moments as a manager or management team when you're faced with these, if not bet the company decisions, it's like pretty close to it. Yeah, yeah. And then you just make the best decisions that you can at the, any one time. And then um, what I loved, uh, this one worked out really fine, but Dan also taught me that you'll never know the road not taken. So don't ever regret a decision you make, mm. but you might want to pivot from what you've made. Yeah. You can make a new decision, yeah. but don't ever regret it. And that was, that's been super liberating for the rest of my life. So I appreciate that. Actually, it's good advice for us too. That was such an inspirational story because you weathered the storm. Yes. I mean, and you know, Amazon or Microsoft or Google or, you know, all Apple, all the big companies are really, there's been ebbs and flows in the Valley where some of them, they weren't very kind of savvy competitively. And now they are very savvy. And so pretty much any startup that you and I are working with is going to bump into one of them. Yeah. And so having that kind of being able to weather the storm and, and, and having that decision matrix that you had said, which is like, Take the road, but don't regret the road you don't take, I think is really powerful. Right. And then just keep, you know, set a point at which you will reevaluate the decision. Yeah. And, um, yeah, and it turns out everybody did fine. (laughs) Well, that was, you've had an amazing career. Village Global, great fun. Please check them out. It's been such a pleasure working with you and getting to know you. Maybe you can tell everyone, just as a wrap-up, where they can find you, how to reach out, that kind of stuff. Yes, uh, villageglobal.vc. You can um, read about our fund. We're at the seed stage, and we're at formation stage with our accelerator, which can be done virtually from all around the world. So lots of options for great founders, and um, reach out to us. I'm on Twitter. I have very small Twitter following. Well, <laughs> hopefully this podcast boosts that up. I don't. I can't. I won't get you to the millions, but maybe we'll <laughs> we add a few. Thank you uh, very much, and, and thanks for all you do for founders. Oh, thank you, and such a pleasure. Thank you so much. And before we go, quick shout out to Rippling. Thank you again for sponsoring on the podcast and and we'll see it we'll see you soon thank you bye so when your troubles are mounting in tax or accounting you go to cruise founders and friends it's cruise consulting founders and friends with your host scotty old